Good morning again. You would turn to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue in our series in Matthew. What are you guys all doing tonight? Vikings came at noon. So, that's not an excuse. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. <clears throat> While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I, I echo Dan's prayer for the Ugarud family and for Christine's extended family while they're in Florida this week, finishing up their time in Disney. And uh, in that situation with Rachel's health, I, I pray, Lord, that this can be an opportunity for a great memory for all of them. I pray that this can be uh, a, a wonderful experience. And Lord, I continue to pray for Rachel. Lord, you are the divine healer. You are sovereign. And we know that you are in control of all things. And we entrust that to you. And we pray that she continue to, to grow in faith in this season, Lord. And I ask that you bless them all in this time. Lord, I pray for our time this morning in your text. I pray that as we study this, we can have a better insight into your word, a greater love for your glory, and a trust in your gospel. I pray for clarity, Lord, in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Just right off the bat, I'm going to say this. We're going to cover a lot today. On the one hand, this passage is pretty straightforward. The climax of this passage this morning is Jesus raising a girl from the dead. Jesus raises three people from the dead in the Gospels, not including his own resurrection. He raises Lazarus in the Gospel of John. He raises a young man in Luke chapter 7. And the young girl here in Matthew chapter 8. This story is also actually found in the Gospels of Mark and Luke as well. In this passage... A man approaches Jesus saying that his daughter has just died. While Jesus is on his way to her, he's interrupted by a woman who's been hemorrhaging blood. He heals her, and then he raises the girl. That's the short version. And in one way, again, it's pretty straightforward. But that's also really just the tip of the iceberg. Perhaps you've heard this before, but on an iceberg... The part of it that's above water is only actually about 10% of the entire surface area of the iceberg. As big as they can appear above the water, there's so much more to it below the surface. 
And I think that's a good metaphor for this passage this morning. Just from reading it, that there's so much that we, that in this story that is below the surface. It's a wonderful passage in God's word. But when we do look below the surface, we see that there's more than meets the eye, more than what we thought. Because a story like this one is so straightforward that I think it's easy to read it in your Bible and to think, well, that's good. It's good that we see Jesus raising people from the dead in the Gospels. And it is, of course. But it's my hope that as we get below the surface of this passage, we can have an even greater appreciation for what's going on in this story. And ideally, that it would point us to a deeper love and appreciation for Christ and his gospel. And in this passage this morning, we're going to be looking at it in three scenes. First scene. Jairus comes to Jesus, beginning in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, Jesus is teaching, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him. Matthew doesn't mention the man's name, but Mark and Luke tell us that he was named Jairus and that he was a synagogue ruler. So he was a prominent figure in the Jewish community, someone who was respected. And he approaches Jesus and tells the Lord that his daughter has died. But he asks Jesus to come and put his hands on her so that she may live. Matthew, in his gospel, makes no mention of any discussion between Jesus and Jairus. Verse 19 simply says that Jesus arose and began to follow him with his disciples. So he's off to intervene on behalf of Jairus' daughter. Until, we come to our second scene, a woman who is hemorrhaging blood reaches out to Jesus. It totally interrupts the story. Verse, beginning in verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. I think it's really important to have some historical context. And all three of the Gospels that mention this event happening, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the woman's name is never given. But we're told that she had had this discharge of blood. Between her regular menstrual cycles, the woman, again, she was hemorrhaging blood. It had been happening, as all three Gospels that mention the story tell us, it had been happening for 12 years. There are numerous things that can cause such a condition. It's my understanding from research that it's not particularly common, especially today. But there are things that can cause this to happen. Hormone imbalances, various infections, uteroid fibrosis, various types of, of cancers. But whatever it was, considering that it had lasted for 12 years, it doesn't seem like it was something that was life-threatening. But that doesn't mean that the significance of this on her health should be undermined. Because in this culture, in this time, this issue would have had devastating consequences for this woman. To give a little bit of Old Testament background, 
Mark and Luke's accounts of this story tell us that this woman had tried several different things to try to cure this problem, but none of them had worked. She had spent all that she had, which probably wasn't a whole lot. Based on Leviticus chapter 15, the woman would have been considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. In the book of Leviticus, there's a significant emphasis on being clean versus unclean. And this dealt ultimately with a person's preparation for worship. But it also had social ramifications. Everyone would have been unclean at certain times of life. To be unclean was not necessarily to mean that you had sinned. The affirmation chapter in Leviticus 15 deals with various bodily discharges of both men and women. Some of these are really usual and typical. Things like intercourse and menstrual cycles mentioned in Leviticus. Others, though, were less prevalent, such as what this woman in this passage was suffering through, hemorrhages for 12 years. Now, for these various discharges, a person would have been ceremonially unclean for a certain period of time, ranging from a day to a week. And that might strike us as odd. It should be understood that the law of the Old Testament was meant to distinguish the Israelites as the people of God from all other nations. In the ancient Near Eastern world from which Israel arose, most of their surrounding neighbors were basically pagan fertility cults. And so part of what Leviticus 15 is doing with these discharges is that it's removing anything associated with sexuality from temple worship. Another benefit to these laws about clean and unclean is that people who were having these various discharges of fluids could have potentially put other people at risk of getting diseases or other illnesses. And in a culture that didn't know what we know today about germs and the transmission of disease, this was helpful. Although it must be understood that that was not the purpose for the law of clean and unclean. Because if it were, it makes no sense that such Old Testament laws no longer carry any weight in the New Testament. The desire for being clean and unclean isn't primarily concerned with tidiness. It's concerned ultimately with pointing us to the holiness of God. That God is set apart. He is righteous. And that there is cleansing to be done before approaching a holy God. The, the physical purification was meant to point us to the true purity of heart that God desires from us. We don't casually approach a holy God in any old way we want. He is to be approached with reverence. Again, being unclean was not necessarily a matter of sin. The woman here had not sinned in terms of the issue of uncleanliness. And so we return to this woman in Matthew chapter 9. She had had this discharge for 12 years, which means she would have been considered unclean for 12 years. 
If an unclean person touched someone else, the person you just touched became unclean. You couldn't sit down where somebody who was unclean had sat or you'd become unclean. So you would have had to, have again, you would ritually wash. You would have the period of time before being considered clean. But the fact that this woman was constantly having these discharges meant that she would have been perpetually unclean. And I think it's important to have this background for this woman's situation. When we begin to understand that, we realize that what she's going through is no small thing. She would have not been allowed to attend public worship. She would really have been limited in her interactions with other people. She would have essentially been an outcast. It's very possible that this woman never married. If she had given her status of being unclean, it would have been in violation of the Old Testament law to have consummated the marriage. And if she hadn't been able to consummate the marriage and therefore provide an heir in that culture, that was grounds for divorce. Without a husband or male offspring, life would have been extremely difficult for a first century Jewish woman. She would have had no support and little opportunity to support herself. It wasn't 2017. It's not like she would have just gone out and gotten a job or gone to school. It's a patriarchal society. And she was unclean. And again, I go into all this detail because I think it's so easy to read these, first, these few verses quickly without truly appreciating the tremendous ramifications this woman would have endured. As she approached Jesus, she was discreet, verse 20 tells us. She came up behind him. She couldn't really make herself known in the crowd. She was unclean. And again, anyone she came into contact with would have been unclean. So she's discreet. The passage tells us that she touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. It says, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, verse 21. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. What does that mean, though? The, the fringe of his garment. I know I used to read this story and think that it meant that she could just touch like his coat or, or, or anything that he was wearing. But again, I think there's more actually below the surface. In the Old Testament law, men would wear these special tassels on the outside edge of their clothes. I have a picture. There we go. See those little string things looking down? Those tassels would hang down. It's called a tzitzit in Hebrew. And those were a symbolic way of reminding you of the law of God in the Old Testament. Kind of like how maybe sometimes you tie a piece of string around your finger or put a rubber band around your wrist or maybe set a timer on your phone to make sure that you remember something. In a way, it's kind of like that. And that is the thing that it seems like she was trying to touch. By the way, these are still worn today by observant Jewish men. And again, they had this, this symbolic meaning. And that's what she touched. What she did was a bit superstitious. Thinking that just touching his clothing would have some sort of power in it. 
Matthew 9, 22 says, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. So Jesus is on his way to do one miracle, and he's interrupted by this woman in need, and he does another miracle to help this second woman. He heals her. And that leads right in to our third scene. Jesus raises a girl from the dead. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowds making a commotion, I'll stop right there. In that time period, it was a funerary custom to actually hire professional mourners to go to funerals and to hire a flute player. The funeral would have been very shortly after death because it was before embalming existed, so you wanted to bury the person quickly. But during all of the antics of this very public funeral, Jesus interjects in verse 24. He says, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. But they're at a funeral. And funerals are for dead people. And so to those people, what they're hearing was absurd. And the text says, and they laughed at him. But the crowd was sent away nonetheless. In verse 25. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. The text tells us nothing of what she said, of how Jairus, her father, responded. Mark and Luke's Gospels both elaborate a bit more. I'll let you read those for yourselves. The story ends in verse 26. And the report of this went through all the district. To this point in Matthew, Jesus has been growing in reputation throughout the region. And not surprisingly, him raising a girl from the dead would have been a big deal. And so that's the story. Again, I think it's easy to look at this passage and to think it's a story primarily about Jesus raising someone from the dead. And it is that, but... It's not just about that. Because it's one story where there are two miracles. And I think we miss the point if we just make it about the second one. There are two situations that could hardly be more different. We have a man who goes to Jesus and a woman who goes to Jesus. Women were treated as basically second-class citizens in first-century Jewish culture. But Jesus interacts with women throughout the Gospels. One of the people who approached Jesus was a person in a position of authority. The other was on the fringes of society. One was respected. The other was an outcast. One was a man with at least some means. The other would have almost definitely been destitute. One was a person that was clean according to the law of the Old Testament. The other was perpetually unclean. One comes to Jesus and shows reverence for Jesus. He bows down to Jesus, Mark and Luke's accounts tell us. The other sneaks up behind Jesus. But what do they have in common? What's the connection? 
because the two stories are together in this passage for a reason. It's Jesus raising this girl from the dead, but the story is interrupted. So what is the connection? One thing that they have in common, and this is something we've talked about a lot, when you look at this story in light of the Old Testament, the laws that we've talked about of being clean and unclean, Jesus comes into contact with two women who are both unclean. The first one touches Jesus. The second one, the passage tells us Jesus grabbed her hand. And those two facts are important to the story. Because so much of your life in Judaism revolved around the law, being clean, following the commands. It wasn't a casual thing the way how so many in our society treat church today. It was an all-encompassing way of life. And touching someone who was unclean made you unclean. And if you were unclean, as we've said, that impacted your ability to get with God's people, to worship God, to participate in religious activities, to have social interactions. Touching someone who is ritually unclean made you unclean. And Jesus touches both of these women. He did it because he's pointing to a greater cleanliness. He's replacing the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, with something better. And in this passage, we get a picture of that. The Gospel of John makes the same point, but he does it a little bit differently. The first miracle Jesus does in John's Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding feast. They run out of wine. Jesus turns water into wine. Where does he get the water? From Jewish ritual purifying water jars. The water that was used for ceremonial cleansing. That's the water he turns into wine. Why? Because he's pointing to a different kind of water. He's pointing to something better, himself. We see the same idea in this passage. He's pointing to a different type of cleanliness. He's pointing to a different paradigm for God's people. He's replacing the law of the Old Testament. The ceremonial laws are meant to point us to the holiness of God. And with Jesus on earth, we have the holy God in the world. He comes into contact with these two women who were unclean. He didn't have to. He does other miracles in the Gospels where he doesn't touch a person. In John 4, a man comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his son. Jesus doesn't even go to him. He just says, your son will live. And the boy does. In John 5, a person is paralyzed, comes to Jesus, and Jesus commands him, go, get up, take up your bed and walk. Doesn't touch him. And yet, that's not what Jesus does with these two people who are unclean. Why didn't he just read the first woman's mind and know that she needed to be healed and heal her? Why didn't he just say that the girl would raise from the dead? Why did he have to come into contact with them? He didn't touch them because he needed to. It's that he chose to. In this passage, we see faith. The faith of the woman who's been having these discharges. The faith of the father. And it is faith that has them turn to Jesus to know that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is their hope. 
And so Jesus comes into contact with people in their time of need. He brings restoration. He gives them life. Because when the Lord comes into your life, even though you're a sinner, even though you don't deserve his grace, that we are unclean, that we are not holy, we cannot be holy, we can never purify ourselves, purify our hearts. We can never cleanse ourselves by good deeds, by church involvement, by any sort of rules that we follow. We can never purify ourselves enough to be in the presence of a holy God. But even though we are unclean, that when Jesus cleanses us, when Jesus touches us, when the gospel touches our hearts, we become clean. Observant Jews hated the thought of being unclean. And so Jesus comes into contact with these two women. And even though in the Old Testament it made a person unclean, Jesus coming into contact with the unclean didn't make him unclean. It made the unclean clean. Really, that's the main idea of this whole passage. Jesus coming into contact with the unclean didn't make him unclean. It made the unclean clean. And when you trust in that by faith, even though you yourself are not clean, that you yourself are not ready to enter into the presence of God, he makes you clean because he is that awesomely holy. And he'll do that for anyone who comes to him in faith. He'll make you clean because he is clean. He'll make you worthy to be in the presence of God by his Holy Spirit. By his Holy Spirit, he will make your heart clean. Because of his death and resurrection, he will make your soul clean. And he will do that for anyone who comes to him in faith. Jesus makes the unclean clean. Trust in him. Place your faith in him. That we do not live up to the standards of a holy God. Our world likes to water down the gospel. Likes to play games with the gospel. That if God is loving, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can't be clean if you don't want to be. Jesus cleanses those who trust in him by faith. He makes the unclean clean. He forgives you of your sins. He washes them away. But you have to have faith in him. Because you can't be made clean unless you know you're dirty. He does these two miracles for these two women. And then those are wonderful works of grace in their lives. They should point us to the healing power of Christ. They should point us to the glory of God. That when things look bleak and hopeless, we have a God in whom we can hope. Jesus gives life to the dead. But maybe it's easy to t and tempting to get cynical. That he's doing miracles left and right in this section in Matthew. But there are people who need help today. For this young girl and for the woman who had been hemorrhaging blood. And for everyone else Jesus ever healed. All of them still eventually died. Because it's a fallen world. They got to experience this wonderful work of Christ. And they lived maybe another 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. But they still died. 
But in doing these miracles, Jesus is displaying his power, which is the basis for our hope. Even though the gospel makes us right with God, it doesn't insulate us from the fact that the world has fallen. But Jesus has promised eternal life to all who trust in him. Like I said at the beginning, each of the gospels has stories of Jesus raising people from the dead. This points us to his own death and resurrection. And that points us to our own hope because of the gospel. That Jesus is powerful over all things. That's what we've seen the last several weeks as we've been in Matthew 8 and 9. He has power over people's health. He has power over nature. He has power over life and death itself. We should read this story knowing that this was a real event that really happened. That this girl was really dead. That her father was heartbroken and he reached out to Jesus. That this isn't some made-up story, that this isn't some fable. It's worthless to us if that's the case. But it is a real event in the ministry of Jesus. He raised her from the dead. And that's the power that he has. That's the dominion he has over life. That's the promise he makes to all who trust in him. And because this girl literally died and was raised, and because Jesus literally died and rose and promises to clean us of our sins, all who trust in him and in his gospel should live each day in the confidence and knowledge that we have an eternal future in the presence of the holy God who makes the unclean clean, that he gives life to the dead. And that is our own hope and our own lives for eternity. Christ and his gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you do make the unclean clean. You make the unworthy worthy. You make the unholy holy. May we trust in you, Lord. May we delight in your gospel. May that be our hope. May we reach out to you. May people who know you take an even greater joy in the realization that you have made a way. And for people who don't, or who are on the fence, Lord, reveal yourself to them, that you are the way, you are the hope, that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.